I'd like to ask you to take your Bible and turn to Titus chapter 2. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out and be a part of our children's church at this time. The rest of us turning to Titus chapter 2. Paul has been unfolding for us through the pages of inspired scripture what a healthy church looks like. As we have looked at the behavior of a healthy church, the belief of a healthy church, we've looked at how the church should be organized in both its leadership and its servants in chapter 1. We are now unfolding in chapter 2 through the pages of scripture how the Bible tells us that the church should interact with each other. In chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10, we saw how a church interacts with each other in its discipling relationships. And so our text for the morning begins in chapter 2 and verse 11. I'd invite you to direct your attention there with me. Chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, We're zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God have the blessing to the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing and your illumination this morning. As we look into your words of Scripture, may you give hope where hope is needed. May you give encouragement where encouragement is needed. May you give conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to the hearts that need it this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. What would happen if I called you and I was having issues with some lawn equipment, and I needed some help. And I knew that you were well-versed in small engine operations and repair. Some of you are very mechanical. Some of you are mechanically challenged. But let's just say, for the sake of argument this morning, that you find yourself in a position to where you are mechanically efficient and effective in, in small engines. And I say, I don't understand what's happening. I am trying to get my lawnmower to work and it just won't work i've tried everything i've had it serviced the blades are sharp i've been pulling and pulling it's got a brand new spark plug in it the air uh, filter is clean so it's getting air it's getting it's getting sparks and i even filled up the fuel tank to the top with water And I've been pulling and pulling and nothing is happening. And you say, well, you're not supposed to fill it with water. Fine. And so I go and I fill it with antifreeze and it still doesn't work. 
Or I go and I fill it with, with oil, brand new oil. Doesn't work. Even try my wife's vegetable soup because that's what gets me going when I'm having problems. And so, still doesn't work. And you say, Joe, if you would just fuel it effectively, everything would work just fine. So once the fuel tank is drained and cleaned and nice clean gasoline is put in it, it starts right up. Because in order to be effective in an engine, it needs appropriate fuel. You know, our Christian lives are no different in that there's something that's fueling you in your Christian life. There is something that you are finding as your motivation to live your Christian life. Perhaps you even have the right actions. Like you read verses 1 through 10 of Titus chapter 2 and you see how we are to be interacting with each other and discipling endeavors and relationships and and you've been striving to be the right Christian and perhaps you found yourself frustrated. You found yourself lacking and it seems like when you pull the starting cable of your Christian life, it just sputters and sputters out and you have you have become so frustrated that you've almost, you've almost been willing to give up living for Christ. You've tried church, it just doesn't work. You've tried relationships, it just doesn't, just doesn't work. And I'd like to submit to you this morning that it may be that you have water in your gas tank. It may be that your fuel, your motivation that is driving you in your Christian life may be off. And so what I'd like to present to you this morning in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, is the fuel for the Christian life. It is what motivates your living as a Christian. It is the spark, the fuel, whatever, however you want to put it, that will drive you in a passionate pursuit of sanctified holiness. It gives you the hope that you can live a life pleasing to God. And in fact, it may actually give an explanation to a phrase that you've heard and maybe you've not understood in the past, the phrase, gospel-centered living. And it's found in the theme of the passage, the beginning of verse 11, if you look down with me, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. And with this small word, for... Paul links the ten verses that have come before it and gives them the purpose for which you live your life. He gives you the fuel in which you follow Christ. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace is defined as God's undeserved gifts to His children. You could say, if you want to say it in a fancy way, it's unmerited favor. It's an undeserved gift. But in this passage, what Paul is unfolding with the phrase, the grace of God appeared, is not a word to be defined or even a concept to be understood, but verse 11 gives us a person to be believed in. Because when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, what he's saying is that Jesus Christ has come for a reason. 
And wrapped up in this phrase, the grace of God, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is everything that he has accomplished through the plan of redemption. And this text tells us that that this redemption has appeared to us. This word, it was used in the first century to, to speak of when a king would go and visit his subjects and nobody knew he was coming. And all of a sudden, by surprise, you would walk out of your dwelling and you would see the king on horseback in front of you and the guy would say, the king has appeared. The king is here. In a way that was unexpected. In a way that, that has come to to, to judge in a way that has come to collect taxes or to give an account or for whatever reason he has come, he has now surprisingly shown up. So Paul says that, that, that the grace of God, the, the person and work of Jesus has appeared to us, but not on conquering horseback as we all know. King Jesus appeared not with the pomp and circumstance of of human kings, but in humility and in meekness in a way that nobody would have ever guessed. A child born to a poor carpenter's family, born in an animal stall, laid in a cattle trough for a crib, the king of the universe appeared to accomplish his mission of the fa- that the father had given him of rescuing his people. And so the entire Christmas season can be summed up with the beginning clause of verse 11 for the grace of God appeared. For what purpose did Christ come? Why did Jesus come to this earth? And this is perhaps one of the most misunderstood questions in broader Christianity today. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're visiting, you're, you're a Christian and, and you're looking for a church and or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you've had a false view of why Jesus came. Maybe you're here and you've thought that Jesus came to show us how to live. That he came as a good person, as a prophet, right? To come and to, to reveal to us what God would, how God would want us to live. And so he lives in a way in which we look at him and we say, you know, what would Jesus do? And that's not necessarily a bad question to ask because he did live in full perfection, fulfilling the law. But Jesus didn't come simply as a model of what a good person lives like, looks like to leave us a manual of how we are to live our lives. Some believe that Jesus came to do good social work. Lots of people were sick. Lots of people were in need of, of healing. Some even in need of resurrection. Some were in need of money, and so they catch a fish, and yet out of the fish's mouth comes a coin. And so Jesus goes about his world healing people and healing the sick and doing good things. And so when Jesus comes to a city, and when he leaves it, the city is better off, and thus those who follow Jesus should dedicate their lives to the same social work. Making people's lives better on this earth. And... It is true that Jesus came to heal, to raise the dead, but as a sign from the Old Testament as to who he was to fulfill the role of Messiah. All of these have in them truth, but yet they fall short of the reason of why God sent his Son into this world. There should be no question 
as to why God sent Jesus because our passage clears it up for you this morning in case you have any question if there's any shadow of a doubt of why Jesus came then we look to the next two words after the phrase we just looked at and it says the grace of God appeared bringing salvation that that phrase identifies for us the the reason of why Jesus came into this world that that the king appeared as a humble child to be raised in a carpenter's household laid in a crib that was in the shadow of the cross that he would go to the, for the purpose of bringing salvation for God's people and so we understand that the grace of God has come through Jesus. And what I want you to see in the passage this morning is that the gospel, the grace of God, is not something to be embraced just at the beginning of the Christian life and then abandoned. But the gospel, the Christ coming to save his people, is a vital part of every aspect of your Christian life. And so you need to infuse the gospel into every aspect. And if some of you have been unclear as to what that looks like or how that functions, I'd like to clarify that for you because that's what, what Paul is referencing here. And infusing the grace of God as seen in the redemption of Christ into every aspect of your Christian life. And so God wants us to see this morning that the grace of God displayed in the gospel is brought to bear in two ways in your life. You can say the gospel has two formative effects in your life. And that is, number one, the gospel brings salvation. And secondly, that the gospel brings transformation. And that's what our passage wants us to see. But before we dig into this, I need to uh, clarify what I mean by the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to rescue you in your greatest need. That your greatest need is not your lack of finances, nor is it your failing health. Your greatest need is not your broken marriage. Your greatest need is not your wayward child. Your greatest need is the truth that you were born in sin under the wrath of God, and through Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, you can be reconciled to your Father, that you can have your sins forgiven, that you can have access to God, that God would no longer be your enemy, but would be your friend. That you would no longer be a child of Satan, but a child of God. And that your greatest problem is your sin. And so therefore, Jesus has come in bringing the good news, that's what the word gospel means, that Jesus can rescue you from your sin. And so that truth has two formative effects in your life. The gospel brings rescue. It brings salvation. When I was a young teenager, we had a new family move next door who had a girl in their family who was the same age as, as me. And so uh, me and my brothers went over to meet the new neighbors, as is always scary, and we gave, we'd always give them a loaf of bread and say, hi, we're the fans. Um, we're, I know we're kind of weird, but we're going to hopefully not make your life too difficult, uh, although we're rambunctious and things of that nature. And so... Um, so we developed a friendship with a girl named Melissa, and she came over to our house, and, and I remember that my younger brother asked her, Melissa, are you saved? And maybe somebody's asked you that question before. And her answer was, saved from what? And my brother got big eyes and went running to my mom and said, Melissa needs to hear about Jesus. That's all he knew to say, you know, 12 years old. 
And maybe you have the question this morning, saved from what? Why do I need to be rescued? Well, this phrase, the grace of God brings, bringing salvation for all people, carries with it three implications. Number one, salvation from the penalty of sin. In order to have a rescue, you have to have the rescue from something. Scripture gives us a warning that all those who are God's enemy who do sin will die and are under the wrath of God. Genesis 2.17, the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it, you shall surely, finish the word, die, right? Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. So friend, if you're here and you've sinned, you're going to die. Adam and Eve chose to sin, and because of their choice, sin passed down to every person who's ever lived. And just like you look like your biological parents, so spiritually you look like your spiritual father who was Adam, and you didn't have a choice about it, just like you didn't have a choice about the way you look physically, so you do not have a choice about your spiritual condition, and that is that sin has been passed down to you, and you sin because you are by nature a sinner. And because you are a sinner, Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And that means that everyone who's born is born in sin and thus are in need of a rescue. You were born in sin, I was born in sin, and as a result of being a sinner, you deserve death. But friends, not just physical death, but spiritual death. You deserve to be separated from God because God is fully holy and truly uh, perfect in every way and cannot be even in the presence of sin. Thus Adam and Eve were thrust out of the garden and you, by nature of being a sinner, have been thrust away from God's blessing. You have been held away from God's presence. So all of those who are still in their sin can never be granted access to God. And so you are in need of a rescue. Because if you cannot get access to God, that means that when you die, your soul will live on separated from God in a terrible place called hell that God created for Satan and his demons, but yet is also reserved for all of God's enemies. And if you die in your sin, you die an enemy of God and will thus spend eternity as an enemy of God under God's wrath for all of eternity. You are in need of a rescue from the penalty of your sin. But the truth that Scripture gives us is that that rescue is offered in Jesus Christ. That the grace of God has appeared. And so Jesus has come truly man so he could live the perfect life you can't live. Truly God so that his sacrifice would be divine and effective. And so the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for the believer serves as their substitute. Jesus took the penalty that we deserved, separated from God on the cross. That God the Father separated his goodness from God the Son. And thus... Salvation can be divinely effective for you. You can be rescued through Jesus. So that leaves us with a question. Once I'm rescued from my sin, and by the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that is a moment of of laying your faith 
on Christ. Lay hold of Christ by faith. There's nothing you can do to earn that. It's a gift that God gives. And by trust and belief and faith in Christ, that you lay hold of Him by faith alone, by believing what God has said. Does that moment of salvation, and if you're here, you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, then you've laid hold of Christ for salvation. Does that have any effect in my life? That's the question that Paul is answering. That moment of rescue, that moment of redemption, that moment of salvation, does that have an effect on me going forward? And so, wrapped up in this salvation is the recognition that it's not only being saved from the penalty of sin, but it's being saved from the power of present sin. That through the power of the gospel, the sin chains that were wrapped around you have been shattered. They've been broken. Paul tells the church at Rome, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? How can we who are, by no means, how are we who are dead to sin still live in it? Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So if you're here and you're a Christian, the bonds of sin have been broken for you. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live in righteousness because you've been healed by his wounds. That by the cross of Christ, The power of sin has been broken in your life and you've been given eternal life present in you now. So you can say that before you were saved, you were dead to righteousness and alive to sin. But once the grace of God appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You are now dead to your sin and you are now alive to righteousness. You are alive to the life that God created you to live. This means, believer, that you don't have to sin. You may still willingly choose to wear the shackles of sin, but you don't have to. Those chains have been broken. You have the power through God's presence inside of you to live a victorious Christian life, to live in righteousness. And notice that Paul does not give any qualification for this truth. That if you are here, this truth applies to you. It does not matter what your background is. It does not matter what sin you've been involved in. It does not matter what language you speak, what culture you're from. It does not matter how bad you think you are. It says that the grace of God has appeared, look down at verse 11, bringing salvation for who? For all people. That if you are listening to the sound of the gospel, the call is, rings out for you. That if you are to place your faith in Jesus alone, turning to Him for salvation, recognizing that your works have no merit in your relationship with God, that if you lay hold of Christ by faith, all those who come in faith will find Christ to be a forgiving God. We say it often here at Community. You don't clean up yourself to come to God. You come as you are. And God does the work. There is no condition for salvation other than coming to Christ in faith. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. 
Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, so turn and live. You dying in your sin gives no pleasure to God. So turn to Him and find life. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is rescued. So if you're here this morning and you're not saved, call out to Christ as your Lord. Align yourself under his authority. Recognize him as your king, as your God. Lay hold of him by faith. What happens when a person turns to Christ for salvation? When you are saved, your soul is resurrected from death to life. He infuses life into your heart. Heart of stone gets turned into a heart of flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit and the regenerating work of breathing life into this dead soul. And some people think that when you get saved, you become a better person. Like, I'm not a Christian, I'm Joe, I'm saved, I'm Joe 2.0. Right? I'm a better person now that I'm saved. But that's not at all the picture that Scripture gives us. It says you're not a, you're not a better person. You're a new creation. Amen. It's not even comparing apples and oranges. It's comparing apples and elephants. Right? It's saying these are two totally different things. Like you were dead and now you're alive. You're not better. You're new. You have new desires. You have a new life present inside of you. And so the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all to make them new people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God who gave Christ to reconcile us to himself. You are a new person. You're not just better. You're new. And this change is then evidenced through a transformed life. So not only does the Gospel bring salvation, but it brings transformation. And so if your question was, does the gospel have anything to do with my everyday life? My answer would be, the gospel has everything to do with your everyday life. Because you're a new person. Because the old man has been crucified with Christ. And yes, the flesh, your sin nature, still rages strong as the, as the power of sin wafts over you. But it has no power. It's just a smell. It's just a leftover aroma. 
from being chained in the powers of your sin. And so as a believer, the gospel has everything to do because it brings transformation. Look down at verse 12. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, not only bringing salvation, but training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. When you receive the grace of God in your life, you you receive new desires. You receive new motivations. You receive gas in your tank. Right? Right? The message of these verses is that when God saves people, He changes them. And if you have not been changed, you have not been saved. That does not mean that changing brings about salvation by any means. But that those who have been saved have been radically changed because you can't be a new creation and be just like the old one. When you're saved, you're given the very presence of God for all of eternity. Brought to fruition and culmination in the moment of glorification when you're changed to be like Him in your physical body. This verse says in verse 12 that the Gospel trains us. And so what that means is this life that is infused into you is actually a spiritual trainer. This is not the technical word for teacher. It's the word trainer as if you would say, I have a sports trainer. I am, I, 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 I'm involved in, in running, and, and I have a, a sports trainer. I'm involved in football, and so maybe I play the position of quarterback, and so I have a quarterback trainer. I have someone who models for me what this looks like, And who coaches along the way to specifically train. Guys, this passage says that when you were saved, that was given to you in your heart. That the life that you live, the life of God, is training you. Guiding like a parent. It must be the Holy Spirit training you through His Word. Because, friend, listen to me very carefully. However you are trained is how you will live. I'm a big college football fan, and uh, Mr. Ken and Marty Collier are staying with us, and last night we were talking about the differences between the SEC and the ACC. And for some of you who don't know football, you're like, they're basically the same thing. No, they're not. They don't, right? My team is in the ACC. His team is in the SEC. And because of that, the coaches run their offenses and their defenses differently. And so when you play a conference game of someone outside your conference, and it takes much more coaching and training to focus on the fact that they play the game in their nuances differently. Because they have been trained differently. And friends, if you're not careful, if your trainer for your Christian life is not the Holy Spirit through the Word of God Your Christian life will not reflect the character of God. It will reflect the character of some outside force. Maybe it will reflect the character of some pastor who took far too much authority 
to step outside the boundaries of Scripture and constrain your conscience. And so, in your spiritual life, you've been trained not by the Word of God through the power of the Spirit, but by some man-made external influence. Maybe your training has been in some other, uh, other uh, religion in that you've been, you were raised in Roman Catholicism or you were raised in Mormonism and, and your conscience has been tempered by those lies. And so when you step into a biblical lifestyle, there are things that rub you wrongly because you have not been trained correctly. And so we have to make sure that as we're trained in our Christian life, we are leveraging the power of the Holy Spirit through the clear teachings of the Word of God to train us to do what? First of all, to live controlled by the Spirit, verse 12. It's what that word self-controlled means. We looked at that a little bit last week, is how this... Verse 12 says this, training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. That is cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Enough discipline in your life to say no to sin and yes to God. Renouncing sin means to reject sin, to turn away from sin in an active, ongoing way. Meaning that because you have received the gospel, you've received the presence of God in your life, and therefore this presence of God through the Word of God trains you to give yourself over to the power of God on a continual basis, a continual basis so you will continually say no to sin and yes to God. That the Holy Spirit trains you through conviction. To say no to that sin and yes to righteousness. That the Holy Spirit trains you through the promptings of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. We're not talking about some external voice that you're hearing because you had pizza last night and you've got indigestion. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Holy Spirit speaking through the Word of God. To train you, to renounce, to say no over and over and over again. That through the Word of God, the Spirit of God trains you to renounce sin. And friend, it's not enough just to say no to sin once. That's what this word renounce means. It means a continual rejection. You must realize that the Christian life is all about fighting sin and struggling with sin. That's what identifies the Christian is struggle. And perhaps you're here today and you've viewed your life as a failure because you're struggling with sin. And I'm a Christian and I'm struggling with this sin and I call out to God for forgiveness on a daily basis and I'm struggling with sin and I'm such a failure and I'd like you to switch your viewpoint and throw your eyes to Christ and to say the essence of the Christian life is struggle. And as you struggle and you say no to sin, the struggle wanes and the intensity of the temptation wanes. But the essence of your life is a struggle and that's what makes heaven so sweet. That's why we long for heaven, the absence of the struggle with sin. The closer you get to God, the more aware you are of your own shortcomings. I thought I was growing, but the more I grow, the more I see my sin. Exactly. And if you're here and you think you don't have a lot of sin in your life, it's because you're a baby Christian. And you're not growing close to the holy light of God that reveals your struggle with pride. Greed, discontentment, lust. 
when passions raise their ugly head, you've been given the strength through the power of the gospel and the presence of God living inside of you to say no over and over and over and over again. To renounce sin, but not just renounce sin, but also to live in the Spirit. To set your heart to live under the control of the Holy Spirit and not just the control of sin. In, uh, in other words, the Christian life is not about just saying no, it's about saying yes. The Christian life is not about saying I don't do and I'm not and I don't participate in, but it's saying this is who I'm following. And as a result of this person that I'm pursuing and as a result of this force in my life of eternal life given to me by God, as a result of me living a righteous life, obviously there are things that I do not participate in because when I say no to sin, I'm saying yes to Jesus because I'm saying yes to righteousness because your fight in your life is not just saying no to sin, Every no to sin is a yes to a righteous lifestyle. And we have to keep that in our mind. Because the motivation, the gasoline in our engine, is that you have been given new life. And your call to live in the Christian, the Christian life in the church is to live through the power of that eternal life present inside of you. Every no to sin must be seen by you as a yes to God. God, I am saying yes to you. I am aligning for the purpose that you have for me. But Paul gives a a qualification there in verse 12. If you want to look down with me. He said, it's not just self-controlled and upright, but it must be godly. Look down at verse 12. To live self-controlled, upright, means dignified, in a way that is Godly, godly lives. That means representative of God. In other words, your goal is not just to live a moral life. This is why we say that you are not a, just a better person. You are a new person because your goal is to live like Christ, to live like God, to have his character reflected, that your desires would be God's desires, that your character would be God's character. And as a side note, friends, this is the, the center, the nucleus of our evangelistic efforts. That your life lived as a reflection of God in this world draws the unsaved to Christ. Evangelism can only happen if God's people are living in a way that is holy and separate from sin. And so the gospel transforms us to live renouncing sin, controlled by the Spirit. Thirdly, to live looking for Christ. Look at verse 13. One of my favorite verses in the entire book of Titus. 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, this waiting, as we've referenced often, is not a passive waiting. As though I'm sitting in a doctor's waiting room. I don't know if you've been to the ER lately, but you'll do a lot of passive waiting. right? Or perhaps an urgent care when you show up and you realize that they take something called online appointments. And you realize that there are six people in the queue in front of you who are not there yet. But you'll wait for two hours in order to see a doctor. And so you sit down and you wait. Or you go to a theme park and you stand and you wait in line. You wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. 
That is not at all the concept here. The concept here, as we've referenced before, but I'll use the illustration again because it's the picture that I want you to see when you see the word waiting in Scripture for Christ. It's the picture of the grandchild at the front window waiting for his grandparents to turn the corner. I know they're coming. They said they'd be here. And they said five minutes. Has it been five minutes yet? No, it's only been 30 seconds. Has it been five minutes now? No, you just asked me that. Because there's this expectant waiting, this excitement. And and that's that's the concept here, that that we live in our lives because, because our new life is being lived out, saying yes to Jesus. That we're waiting for that day. Waiting for Christ to return. Waiting for our blessed hope to appear. But this appearance will be far different than before. Because this appearing will be the appearing of a conquering king. This appearing will be appearing to set up an earthly kingdom. This imminent appearing that we long for is the appearing of our rescuer to get rid of the struggle. Who is he? He's our blessed hope that confident expectation of the blessing of eternal life. Who is he? He's our God. He's not just a God. He's not just the God. He's our God. He's he's the one that we worship. He's our Father. He's our Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who reached down to rescue you in your time of greatest need will come in bodily form, Jesus Christ riding a white horse of victory. He's our gift. He gave Himself for you. You could never get to God on your own, so He came to you. You could never earn God's favor with your deeds that are tainted by sin, so He lived the perfect life for you. The salvation that's offered is this free gift to be received By faith, He gave Himself for us. Who is He? He's our Redeemer to redeem us. He purchased you with His shed blood on the cross. That He paid the price to purchase you out of a life of lawlessness and count you as God's child. Who is He? He's your rescuer to purify Himself for a people for His own possession He's he's your cleanser. He's the one who cleans you. He's your rescuer to to take His blood and wash you from your sin. And if you read carefully, you'll see that He's your owner. That He's your Lord. To purify for Himself a people for His possession. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and says, Did you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's not yours. It's my body and I can do what I want with it. No, it's not. It's His body. And He can do what He wants with it. Your life is not yours to give. If so, try to give up your life. None of us can close our eyes and give up our spirit and die. You can take your life, but you can't give it because it's not yours. 
It's God's. And he owns it. And he gives life as he chooses. And he takes life as he chooses because it's his to give and it's his to take. And so as a Christian, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. He's your Lord. He's your owner. He bought you. We live our lives longing for the return of Christ. Let us remember our Savior and our Lord who bought us and will come back to claim His own and what a wonderful Master He is. For you will either be mastered by sin or mastered by Jesus. But while we're here longing for Him to return, what is our function as we expectantly and excitingly look actively. Look at the end of verse 14, who are zealous for good works. What are you zealous for? What are you passionate about? What is it that in your life, if we were to take it away, you would seem as though life was not worth living? Teenager, is it your phone? You know, parenting is actually, in discipline, is very simple. You just identify what your child loves. And you threaten to take it away. If you don't obey, then it will be gone. But I can't live without it. I'm sorry, you're just going to have to die without it. Video games! My, my, my Instagram account, my whatever it is, TikTok, Snapchat foolishness, whatever it's called these days. I just can't live without it. What are you zealous for? Scripture says that as we live this life waiting for our blessed hope because that eternal life that's in us is resonating with the return of Christ, that we are passionate for good works. What good works? Read verses 1 through 10. That what fuels us, what fills our tank, is the life of Christ granted at salvation. And when you pull the starter string of your life, what comes out is lots of good works. I'm living for God. My life is here. I'm living for the one who bought me, who, who saved me, who, who I'm glorifying. I was reading this morning in my quiet time a, a, a book that, that centers around the doctrine of the glory of God. and It was written several hundred years ago, and he the author says, if, if rocks give glory to God and creation gives glory to God and God didn't die for the rocks and God didn't die for creation but he died for his people, how much more should you and I give glory to God? And then he said, you can't live your life rent free. Like this is your duty. This is your job. This is how we live and why we live, that we are zealous for living for God in whatever arena God has placed you, in whatever area in which you are, that you live zealous for good works. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. But don't stop there, for we are his workmanship. That workmanship means project. You ever felt like God's project? For we're God's projects. 
created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, Ephesians 2.10, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Operating our lives through the power of the Spirit, cooperating with the life that's in us and the new desires that we have to do good works. It is not those good works that earn us our salvation. It is those good works that are a result of the redemption that God has provided and that we have claimed by faith. You were saved to give God glory with your life. Don't rob Him of His glory. If you are not working out this new life that you have been given, you are not fulfilling the purpose for which God put you on this earth. This is what it means to live gospel-centered. To say that when I wake up in the morning, I recognize that God, through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ, has redeemed me and given me new life. And my responsibility today is to cooperate with that new life. That I have God's life living out through me. And the gospel is not something that you just share with believers. It's something that you share with yourself every day. And you never get over it. And you live in the light of the gospel. It helps me see that my life of holiness is not about being a good person. It's about cooperating with the Holy Spirit living inside of me. It means that fighting sin is not just about gritting my teeth and bearing down. It's recognizing that I need to say no to sin by saying yes to Jesus. By cooperating with the power that's inside of me. That I've been changed to be a new creation and sin has no more power over me. It helps me remember that everything that I do is tied to the truth that the grace of God has appeared in my life. And it's this grace that trains me to live every day. So this is the mission for every believer. To be trained by the gospel that saved you. To live your life according to verses 1 through 10 in the discipling relationships of the local church through the power, through the fuel of the gospel. That every time you put gas in your lawnmower, you remember that the fuel that drives you is the new life that you've been given by God. Some closing thoughts that are given in verse 15. The gospel is not just given as salvation and transformation, but it is the message of the church. This is our message. Declare these things, verse 15 says. I mean, can you get much clearer than that? This is what you preach. This is what you say. This is your message. Declare these things. In what way is the gospel supposed to be declared? It's supposed to be declared with exhortation, exhorting you. To believe. You say, Pastor Joe, you get really excited up there sometimes. You should see me at a ball game. Right? My daughter is here and she plays volleyball. And my wife sometimes has to pat my knee in the stands. It's going to be okay. Calm down. Right? And if we can get excited. I mean, how many of you yell at your TVs during ball games and you come to church and you hardly utter a word and we couldn't get you excited unless we put your favorite football player up here then you'd come running down the aisle. You know? And yet we're talking about your salvation. You can exhort. 
to a life that reflects the gospel. That we can exhort to holiness and to sanctification, saying you are a new creation. You've been set free from sin, so act like it. That we can rebuke those who are not living this way. That the Bible gives authority to the Christian to rebuke sin, not on his own authority, but on the authority of the Word of God. The authority of God Himself anchored in the truths of Scripture to exhort to righteousness and to rebuke sin. And so the Gospel is the message of the church to be declared. And lastly, it is non-negotiable. Let no one disregard you. This is not a message that can be changed from church to church. It is not a message that should be changed from pastor to pastor. It is not a message that can be changed from person to person. This message is non-negotiable, and it is this, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through Him. It's not an option for the church, and it's not an option for you. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you have no other hope than Jesus. Without Him, You are destined to live a life on this earth seeking your own happiness and never finding it. But inside of Christ, you can find joy and fulfillment, that you can find freedom from sin, that the burden that's on you from your sin can be released and fall into the empty tomb of Christ because He's alive today. So here are my questions to you this morning. Have you embraced the grace that has appeared in Jesus. Friend, do you believe that Jesus alone is your Savior? That there's nothing good that you can do to earn His favor, but the only way to get to God is to cross the bridge of faith. Christian, have you been living your life centered on the gospel grace of God? recognizing that you are a new creation, that you have new life. That that the life that you're living is actually God's life that He gives you to live out because you had to have something to make you alive. That you were dead and God gives you this life and you resonate with the life of God. You cooperate with that life. Where do you need to realign your thinking and your belief system this morning to see a gospel-centered life? That the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation and bringing transformation. It is our message to declare. And it is the truth to be believed and to be obeyed. And so as we close this morning, we ask the question, where has God put his finger on your heart? If you're here and you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to call out to God in the silence of your heart and cast your faith on him? There's nothing that you can do because he did everything needed. Lay hold of Christ by faith alone. And in heaven, find a judge and find a savior rather than a judge. Christians, are you living in accordance with the life that God's breathed into you? The life that fuels all efforts of discipling in the church. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this scripture that so clearly outlines for us the gospel as the fuel for our life, this new life present in us. May we be thankful. May we worship. May we sing. May we pray. And may we live in obedience. For the one that's here who's not a Christian, may you breathe life into that soul. Turn the heart of stone into a heart of flesh that they may receive your word. Place their faith in you alone.